before that, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, it's going to take us a few minutes to get there. We're going to take a roundabout path to get to 2 Corinthians 5, but I promise we'll get there, and I promise we're going to spend most of the morning there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. It's blue. It says Holy Bible on the front because we believe the Bible's holy, um, although we didn't print these. Somebody else did, but somebody else believes that too, so that's cool. Um, page 805 in this Bible is where we're going to be, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, page 805. I'm feeling a little superfluous today. It's a good word, right? Superfluous. Um, how many of you remember your first job? You remember your first job if you're old enough to have a job? How many of you remember? Raise your hand again. Okay, turn to the person next to you and tell them what your weird first job was. Good to hear a lot of giggling and chuckling and things like that. I got to tell you, uh, my first job came when I was 14 years old. This is my first real job uh, when I was 14 years old. When, by the, the time I was 12 until I was about 15, um, I had a lawn mowing business. I mowed lawns like a lot of you probably did. And uh, my friend and I, when we were 14, decided to team up because he was mowing lawns in one end of the neighborhood. I pretty much had the other end of the neighborhood. Uh, we decided, hey, if we team up, we could do this together. We could have fun. And uh, maybe make more money. And so we did that when I was 14. And we got a couple jobs outside the neighborhood where we had to go to this uh, hangar over at the airport, at Indianapolis International Airport. And so we were mowing for this hangar. And one day, one of the guys that ran the hangar came out and said, hey, um, do you kids want a job? Like a real job? We're like, yeah, okay. And so he, he, uh, my first job at 14 was in airplane maintenance. All right, it was really more like cleaning, okay? But... We worked for a hangar. What happened? There was this, um, this private financial company that was based here in Indianapolis, and they had three private jets. And every time the executives would come back into town, they would leave these planes an absolute mess. And the maintenance guys were tired of cleaning up after them. This is what happened. And so he hired my friend and I uh, to go in and vacuum them out, restock them. I don't know if this was legal or not. At 14, I was like restocking the liquor on airplanes. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been doing that. I don't know how that works, but, um, and so that, that was our, my first job. And I, I got to tell you, I made four fifty an hour. I know the Bible says apart from God that we can do nothing, but I got to tell you, I didn't know Christ at the time. Apart from God, I can make four fifty an hour. That's how talented I am. But isn't it true? You take your first job because why money, right? You need the money. Take your first job. Everybody I've ever known that's taken a first job takes it because they need the money. But you learn so many lessons along the way, right? You learn the importance of hard work and the satisfaction of doing a good job and what it means to take personal responsibility and how doesn't like food taste so much better when you earn it and your clothes look so much better when you pay for them out of your own pocket. And kids, students, if you've never had a job, I've got to tell you that day that you get your first paycheck and you open it up and you look and it seems like a huge amount of money that you earn from your own labor, man, that feels so good. And that's something you only learn uh, from getting a job. So get a job, kids. Yeah, that's what that's all about. No, isn't it true? You don't appreciate the value of something like you do when you work for it, right? Well, here's the big idea for the day. And I think you'll see as we go through the scripture, if you are in Christ, you have a job to do in this world. If you are in Christ, for each and every one of us, God has given us a mission, a purpose, a reason to still be here on earth. 
know, if God just wanted to save us, he could save us and then take us away to heaven and we'd be done, right? We wouldn't have to deal with all the brokenness here, but we're still in the midst of it. Why? Because you have a purpose here on this earth. If you're a mom or dad, if you're a grandma or grandpa, if you're a husband or wife, a single person, if you're a college student, a high school student, a middle school student, if you're a 30 year old still living at home in your mom's basement, you have a job in the kingdom of God. There is no unemployment. Even if you're unemployed right now, there is no unemployment in the kingdom of God. So we're starting this brand new series today called The Harvest. What is the harvest? Well, it's the harvest that Jesus talked about uh, in Luke 10 when he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Or in John 4 where he said, Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, I think you know that Jesus isn't talking about an actual crop here, right? He's talking about people. The harvest is people. Jesus is talking about bringing people, bringing believers into his kingdom. It's the great commission. It's telling people about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's, uh, as we say here at Genesis, it's helping people find a way back to God. That's our mission, and that has been the mission of this church since day one, since the day we started helping people find their way back to God. Genesis has always been about the harvest. We've been doing that together for, well, 14 years now. I mean, it started uh, as a small church meeting in a Sunday school classroom at, well, actually started even before that, meeting in an apartment clubhouse with 12 people uh, right on the border between Westfield and Noblesville, and then uh, got our official launch at Grace Community Church in one of the Sunday school rooms on a Saturday night uh, meeting in the Sunday school room. That's where my wife and I found Genesis. We came, there were 35 people uh, in this little Sunday school classroom, and that's where we started uh, more than 13 years ago now, almost 14 years ago now. In 2003, we moved into our own space, our very first place, a rented space. We continued moving from place to place as we would grow, um, making room for more people. And then we moved from Noblesville to Westfield and back to Noblesville. Uh, we hired staff. Uh, we uh, added services, and then in 2007, we settled in our first location in Noblesville on Pleasant Street, what we now call our Noblesville campus, um, and we planted a church. We planted a church in West Plains, Missouri, a church called Genesis Church. One of our former pastors, Jeff Smith, went out and planted a church, and we supported him for, for years and years in 2008, and then, and then we expanded our Noblesville facility, and then in 2012, we planted this campus the Carmel campus and uh, launched this campus with 130 of you that came from Noblesville. We became one church in two locations. And then we helped plant movement church in Newport, Kentucky. And then we support uh, Genesis church in Bloomington, uh, Indiana, or I'm sorry, Grace church in Bloomington, Indiana. And we partner with Nehemiah vision ministries in Haiti and opportunities now in Myanmar and ICF Tirana and Albania and food for souls and shepherd community center right here in Indianapolis. And why? Because we want to be all about helping people find their way back to God, no matter where in the globe they are. We want to engage as many people as we can in the kingdom work that Jesus has given us to do. And so our goal over the next three weeks is to really paint a picture of what we believe that God is leading or what God is doing in our church. We want to show where God is leading us as a church. See, over the past couple years, uh, God has really started to provide some clarity for us um, as leaders, as a staff. He's teaching us some things, and we want to share that with everyone uh, so that we can know like, how we're going to come alongside where God's already at work. Because that's what we want to do. It's pointless for us to try to uh, decide where we're going to go work. We want to come alongside where God is already working. We want the whole church to understand how we can all better help people find their way back to God. So over the next three weeks... That's what we're going to do. And one of the things that we're finding, one of the things that we're getting great clarity on um, is that the Sunday service 
is no longer as effective as it once was at reaping a harvest. That the Sunday service uh, is still important, uh, but it's no longer sufficient for what we need to do. And in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, author John Dickerson makes the case that only about 8% of Americans are what you would call evangelical Christians. Now, I want to define that for you, okay, because that's a term that has been um, maligned and manipulated, I think, a lot by the media. But an evangelical Christian is someone who believes two things. One, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And two, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So if you believe those two things, you are an evangelical Christian by definition. John Dickerson in his book says that about 8% of Americans are evangelical Christians. Now, here's what that means. That means most people in America no longer go to bed on Saturday night wondering where they're going to wake up and go to church on Sunday morning. Right? It means that while 20 to 25 years ago, uh, a good strategy for helping your neighbors find their way back to God might have been to invite them to the marriage class or the marriage um, series that your church was doing, that's no longer as effective. Why? Because they don't know that they're supposed to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. They didn't grow up like that. 20 or 25 years ago, you know, my generation, when I was newly married, uh, we just, maybe we didn't go to church, but we knew we were supposed to. But people today don't feel any less, any more guilty about going, not going to church on Sunday than you feel about not going to temple on Saturday night. We don't feel any guilt about that, right? And I think it's like that now. So now, does that mean that we're going to stop doing Sunday mornings? No, we're going to keep doing Sunday mornings. We're going to keep working on Sunday mornings. We're going to keep putting a lot of time and effort into Sunday mornings. We know that Sundays can still be an effective tool, but it's no longer sufficient for what we need to do. But the dynamic of inviting neighbors to Sunday service and hoping they'll find their way back to God uh, is no longer as effective as it was. That, that dynamic no longer works in our favor. But instead, what we have is we have a whole world full of spiritual people. I mean, my gosh, you don't have to look any further than the, the movies we watch and the TV shows that we're uh, addicted to as a culture to know that we are a spiritual bunch of people, right? And we have a whole... Uh, country full of people who are looking for answers to life's toughest questions. But they have no idea that the church has anything to say about those questions. But you know who they do, do think has somebody, something to say about them? <laughs> they think you do. Your neighbor, who isn't always arguing with his wife, must have something to say about why his marriage is falling apart. You, you the co-worker who... Uh, you don't panic every time the boss walks into her office, must have something to say about how to prevent anxiety and fear. You know, you, the high school student who isn't having to get stoned every weekend to kind of dull the pain, you must have some secret, some answer. So people see Christ followers who are ahead of them on the curve where they want to be in life but they have no idea that the church has anything to say about those. They don't, they don't have any idea that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers that joy and peace and comfort. And that's why disciple-making has become our focus as a church. It's leading people to Christ, growing them in their relationship with Christ, and then sending them out into the harvest field to go uh, make, help people find their way back to God. It's what we've talked about, if you're familiar with um, the disciple-making language we've used, is taking uh, first-chair seekers and turning them into uh, chair two followers, turning them into chair three kingdom workers and chair four disciple makers. Every person has a part to play in helping people find their way back to God. 
Now, the good news about disciple-making is it's relational, and we all have relationships, and so that means that everyone can do it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got a job to do. And so uh, there's no unemployment in the kingdom of God, and so I want to check out what uh, the Apostle Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians. I ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians. I promise we'll get there. I still promise that, but I'm just going to read this real quick. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, here's what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 is where I'm going to start, and I'm going to read this really quickly. Uh, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of, many, of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? I love Paul's sense of humor here. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Now, that's great, Paul. Thanks for describing anatomy for us. What does this mean? If you look at the very beginning of verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ. And we, we know this intuitively. Paul says, look, if, if part of the body isn't working, the whole body suffers. And we know that. I mean, if you don't, chances are you probably never pay much attention to your liver unless it stops working. And if it stops working, it's an emergency, right? You end up in the hospital. You know, what if we treated the church that way? Like it should be the same way in the church. Everybody has a job to do. And if parts aren't working properly or they're not working together, it's an emergency. Every person has a part to play in helping people find their way back to God. So what does that mean for you? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, For us... We're fortunate that we are not the first people to struggle with these questions of purpose and uh, of, of um, you know, what is our job? What is our role to play? Men and women in the first century struggled with this as well. Uh, and Paul, once again, in a letter to the church, in fact, to the same church uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, addressed this. And so I'm, I'm so thankful that we have God's word that, like, anticipates these questions from us. And that has something to say even about today's really relevant issues. And so let's dive in and let's look at how God used Paul to guide and instruct people in the church. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 through 21. But I'm going to start at 21 because I think the end gives us the motivation for what Paul says before that. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Again, it's page 805 in this Bible right here. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This one truth left Paul in awe of the incredibly gracious love of God. See, here's the problem we all face. Uh, It's just as true about me as it is about you, that we are all born into the problem of sin. 
Now, you may not like the word sin. You might think that that's too judgmental or too churchy. But really, sin is just when anytime we fall short of God's standard or outside of God's, God's plan or God's will. Okay, that's sin. And that's what, that's what the Bible calls it. Now, we all, from time to time, fall short of God's standard. And because God knew that we couldn't deal with the problem of sin on our own, he made the first move. He demonstrated his incredible love for us by sending Jesus into the world to take on our our sin. Now, think about this. Jesus, who had no sin of his own, took on our sin. And we, who had no righteousness of our own, got Jesus' righteousness in exchange. Like Jesus had no sin. He took our sin. We had no righteousness. We got Jesus' righteousness in return. And Paul can't get over that. You know, several years ago, I was on a business trip in Taiwan, and I had the opportunity. We stayed uh, over a weekend. I had the opportunity to play golf. Uh, our uh, host invited us to go play golf. And we went to this um, private golf club in Taiwan. And uh, every person who uh, played on this course was assigned a caddy. How many of you are golfers in the room? How many of you golfers have ever had a caddy? Okay, a couple. Good. So this is kind of a big deal, right? Because I'm not a very good golfer uh, at all. In fact, I've got another story I can tell you at another time about that. But um, in this case, it was really cool to have a caddy. Now, they say, okay, we're going to get your caddy, and um, she'll meet you with your clubs out at the first hole. And my caddy comes out, and she is uh, four foot ten, and about 90 pounds, and she's carrying my golf clubs. Now, she had no golf clubs of her own. She was just a caddy, but she got to carry my clubs. Now, there's one thing I remember about this round, and that's that I got to the 17th hole. We were playing at altitude, 5,000 feet of altitude. The 17th hole was uh, 360 yards, dog leg left, downhill. Now, the one thing I was always really good at in golf was hitting the ball a long way. I can't hit it straight. You never know where it's going to go, but I could hit it a long way. 260, 270 yards was not unusual. We're at altitude, we're downhill, and somehow I get it in my head 360 yards. If I really hit the snot out of this ball, I think I can drive the green. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. And so I got up there and uh, I whack and I hit the best golf shot of my life. It sailed off the tee a little bit to the right and then it started to turn a little bit to the left and it kept going and going and it bounced about 40 yards short of the green and it bounced and it bounced and it bounced. Now I didn't drive the green, but I landed four yards short of the green. 360 yards to the cup. The best golf shot of my life. And then I four-putted and bogeyed. (laughs) But you know what the hardest part, the hardest part of that round was? It was letting somebody else carry my golf clubs for me. Because I'm not worthy. Like, I'm not that great a golfer. There are guys who deserve, probably deserve to have somebody carry their golf clubs for them everywhere they go. And I think I hit that shot only because there was nobody. I didn't have the weight of my clubs on my shoulder, right? But it was so hard for me to allow someone else to carry my clubs for me. And for Paul to allow Jesus to carry his sin to the cross, he never got over that. I wonder how many of us have gotten over the fact that Jesus took our sin and took it to the cross with him. Like, have you gotten over what it cost Jesus to buy you back? It was a total game changer for Paul. So this is the reason. This is what he says. That's the motivation for what Paul's going to say before that. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. He says, uh, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now that word compels jumps off the page. 
All right, that word compels uh, means to hem in on both sides uh, or to give no way out. It's the same word that they would use in the old days when they would build a ship channel. And you think about a ship sailing uh, through this channel, and the ship can't turn to the left or to the right. It has to go straight ahead. It's compelled to go straight ahead. Or when uh, the Romans would take someone prisoner, they would often put a guard to their right and a guard to their left so that that prisoner was hemmed in. They were compelled to walk this direction. Says Paul, Paul says, we are compelled, all for Christ. It's all because of Jesus. He's living this new life, giving everything he has to honor God. But he says, we are compelled to walk this direction. You know, sometimes we think because we're in Christ, we have certain options. Like we have things that we can do because we've got the grace of God on our side. Well, I don't have to tithe. I mean, that's Old Testament stuff. So I'm under a new covenant. I'm under a new law. I don't have to, I don't have to tithe. Or, uh, you know, it's okay if you cuss from time to time because really, I mean, Jesus has already paid for our sin. It's not going to cost him anymore if I say that word, right? Or, uh, you know, I can listen to whatever music I want or watch whatever movie I want or whatever TV show I want. It's not going to affect my mind. I mean, my mind is solid. I'm strong. I'm not going to be affected by that. We think we've got these options. But Paul says, I'm not going to have any of that. Like the love of Christ compels us. We've got to go this direction. That, that, that the love of Christ was costly. That it cost him something to die for our sin. And when we become motivated like that, we have great power for God's glory. And then he says, because we are convinced. That is a strong conviction. Because we are convinced that Christ died for all. Okay, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. For Paul, because Christ is in him, and all who have put their trust in Christ, there's a death to the old self, and we have a new life in Christ. And we belong to him. And, he, and Paul says, because we belong to him, we should live for him. We can no longer live for anyone but Jesus. We are compelled. We have to live for Jesus. I can sense Paul arguing, like, how does this not change you? How does, remember, he's writing to the church. How does this knowledge not change the way you act and the way you behave? And he's going to say, and the way you see people here in a minute. Paul says, don't let there be any doubt who you're living for. So verse 16, he goes on. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul has arrived at the striking conclusion that he is no longer free to look at people from a worldly perspective. He says, we're not going to judge people based on what car they drive or where they live or what clothes they wear. The world does that. As followers of Christ, we can't do that. We're not going to judge people on that again. Christ loved everyone enough to die for them. He says, I no longer have the freedom to look at them differently than Jesus does. I must look at those whom Christ loves through an entirely new set of lenses. And so I just want to remind you this morning that you never looked in the eye of someone who Jesus didn't think was worthy of dying for. That every person in your house, every person in your school, every person in your workplace, every person in this church, Jesus went to the cross for them. Every person that's hurt you, every person that abused you, every person that took advantage of you, Jesus thought they were worth dying for. And Paul says, I want to see people the way Jesus sees people. How does Jesus see people? Well, look, at, look back at John 4.35. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest. It's ripe. Jesus sees everyone as a potential citizen of heaven as an inhabitant of his kingdom. 
how does this affect Paul? Well, I mean, Paul was a pretty unsavory character himself back in the day. Uh, He persecuted Christians. He stood by and watched, even helped while they were being stoned to death. But then one thing changed everything for Paul, and he gets there in verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He says, this is what defines my life. And it should not just define my life, but everything that I do in this world. Christ has been crucified and raised to new life. And because Jesus was crucified and raised to new life, I get new life too. We get new life too. Because of the cross, because the cross puts sin to death and offers new life, it changes people. The new creation is is here. The old is gone. And because we're a new creation, we're given a new part to play, a new purpose in the world. I mean, think about this. Where would you start if somebody offered you a chance to start over tomorrow? I know some people would maybe start with their marriage. I think most people wouldn't, but some people would start with their marriage. Some people would start with their family. They want a different family. But most people, you'd keep your spouse. You'd keep your family. Where would you start? You'd probably start with your job, right? If I'm going to start over again, I'm going to start over doing something different. And that's what Paul says. He says, the new has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And man, we are given with that new life. We are given new purpose, a new job, a new role. If you are in Christ, you are brand new. You were given new life. You've been recreated, a new creation by the hands of of a master. The cross has the potential and the power to change people. And now when Paul sees people, he sees potential. He sees the potential of Christ in people. Uh, he knows because he's seen firsthand how Jesus changed him. And, how, and think about this. How has Jesus changed you? I mean, if I think about the way the cross has changed me, it can change anybody. If it can change me, amen? You believe that? See, it, it's changed you. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, probably the cross has changed you. You think about how you used to be? It can change anybody, right? If we believe that, if we experience that in our own life, if we believe you know, what he's done for us is real, then we've got to be willing to believe that can be true of others. And here's what Paul gives us next. This is, this is where we get to our job and our purpose. He says this, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Uh, And so here's what he says. Uh, Well, uh, how many of you have ever reconciled a checkbook? You know what that is. How many of you have ever seen a checkbook? (laughs) So in the old day before the internet, um, if you wanted to pay somebody, there was a slip of paper that you would write, sign your name on. You could give it to somebody. And they could take it to the bank and they could get cash for it. How many of you know what cash is? Okay. <laughs> but, but if you have your checkbook, at the end of the month, you get a statement from the bank. The bank says you have this amount. Your checkbook says you have this amount. And you have to reconcile that, right? You have to make it even. You have to make adjustments normally. You have to make adjustments in your checkbook to get to what the bank says you have, right? Well, Paul says that God reconciled us, that we didn't have to do the work, that God did the work of reconciling us to his standard, that God reconciled for us. And because God reconciled us, that we now have the ministry of helping others be reconciled to God. That, that, that he gave us the ministry and responsibility of reconciling others to God. So summarize, he says, you can't save yourself. 
You can't resolve the problem of sin on your own. Only God can save. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. God provided a solution to the problem of sin. He took our sin. We were given his righteousness. We are made new. We belong to him. Now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and he has given us the message of reconciliation to share with the world. God gave you that the moment that he made you a believer, made you a follower of Jesus. And it goes on, verse 20. This is where we're going to wrap up. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says, God made you to be an ambassador. You're a representative of the person of Christ. Now, an ambassador lives in a place that isn't their home country, but represents the home country to that place, right? So if you're an ambassador from the U.S. to France, you live in France, you represent the U.S. to France, right? You don't live in your home. You live in a foreign land, and you represent your home country. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're not from here. We are citizens of heaven. And we are supposed to represent heaven to the people of earth. You know, an ambassador in Rome, the ambassador was a big deal. It was a a big honor to be an ambassador because you represented the government of Rome uh, in the place where you lived. And Paul is using this uh, analogy from his culture to share with his people and now our people uh, what it means to have influence in the world we're living in. You have been given influence and an audience for which you have the responsibility to share this message of reconciliation. That's what Paul is saying. What's the message? In Christ, you can be made new. You can have a new start. This verse, by the way, verse 20, this is where we get our mission statement as a church, helping people find their way back to God. If you read uh, in the New Living Translation, which is a different translation of the Bible, it says this, so we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's where it comes from. Our church exists to help people find their way back to God. Not just, not just the church, like the building, and not just like our staff, The church, our group, our body of believers exists to help people find their way back to God. You exist to help people. And if you're looking for a new job or a new purpose or a new start this year, would you consider adopting our mission statement as your personal mission statement? That you exist to help people find your way back to God because it is through his changed people that God chooses to communicate the beauty and the benefits of this reconciliation of this cross that he offers. Rescued people rescue people. That's what we do. Think about this. Think about if you're on a boat and the boat sinks and uh, you're floating in the water, you're treading water, you're barely staying afloat. And all of a sudden here comes a raft and some, some rescue worker reaches down in the water and pulls you up onto the raft and you're safe. As you're drying out, do you just take that raft and row it to shore? Row past all the other people that are floating in the water? No, most of us, I think, would reach down in the water and start pulling people out, right? Because rescued people rescue people. Well, that's what happened to us. If, I know not everybody in this room is a follower of Jesus, and that's great, and we're glad you're here if you're not. But for those of us who are in Christ, if we've been rescued, it's our job to rescue people because someone brought the cross to us. We bear the responsibility to help bring others to the cross of Jesus. And that challenge is so easy It's so easy to become distracted by all the other stuff that's going on in our life. So many other motivations, so many other ideas of what we can do. Our greatest priority is to be an ambassador, represent Jesus in this world. My greatest priority and your greatest priority is to present Jesus. I mean, my greatest priority is to present Jesus to my my wife and children, 
to my neighbors, to our church, to you guys, to our staff. That's my greatest priority. What's your greatest priority? And not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a new creation in Christ, because I have been rescued and rescued people, rescue people. If you have come to the foot of the cross and Jesus has changed you, you have a role to play. You've got a job to do. I want to show you um, a story of somebody in our church, actually two people in our church that are seeing uh, that this is their new purpose. Take a look. I'm really passionate about when, when women get together that they're so much more vulnerable and open up. And my goal is really to get people excited about the Lord and just learning to be in his presence and encounter Jesus through that and to know that it's life-giving and it just brings freedom. And um, I just love when women come together and can open up and do that. And so that was my initial goal. And um, what's funny is the first session, which this is a good just thing to remember for group leaders, is nobody shared anything ever. So I just kept showing up, and it was a group of women that I had met in random ways, some from the group that Kevin and I had had, um, and just kept praying and hoping that they would share and open up and that the Lord was moving in their lives, which he was, and I just saw a little bit of fruit from that. But it wasn't until continuing on the next session when kind of the waters broke open and people really started opening up and sharing, and that's when we really saw God do a big work and this journey that we've had over the last two years as a group. One relationship in particular that has been really exciting to me and has really encouraged me in my own walk just by watching her seek so hard after the Lord is my friend Lindsay. She emailed me about the women's group um, at her house and the women that were on that group, like I didn't know them very well, but I knew who they were, and it felt like we were all relatively in the same season of life. It was hard because I, I'm not really like, I, it's hard for me to connect to people, and so it took a, a little bit, and um, little by little, we started getting closer, talking, finding more common ground, and I was really determined into just like opening the word and um, just reading it. And even if I didn't understand it, just keep reading it and then ask Paige those questions that I didn't understand. So then I would understand. I went to church and I remember standing there, standing and worshiping and had this overwhelming feeling of put your hand up. And I was like, no, that's so weird. I'm not doing that. And it was like, you know, this emptiness that you're feeling it's because you haven't stepped into this relationship with me. Like, I'm here, you're here. Just declare me over yourself. And um, when you do that, like, pain and that emptiness will go away. And I remember I was like, okay. And I put my hand up and um, in worship, and everybody else kind of, like, blurred out around me, I felt like. And my body just started shaking, like an overwhelming like shake, and tears were coming down, and um, it was like a release. Like there was something in me that just felt peace, like an inner like peace. And so after that, it was just like kind of like full steam ahead. Like I'm gonna get baptized. I'm gonna declare this, and 
I'm gonna like share that. Um, and so one day I was actually um, sharing Christ with somebody at work. Actually, two girls at work. It was midnight. I worked like the um, third shift, and neither one of these are, neither one of them are believers. The other one said. You know, I've known Lindsay for 12 years, and last year there has been something different about her. She has just gone after it so hard, and it has made me just feel like saying, I will give everything to this. I will give everything to you. I will do whatever I can to help you. Because when God is at work, and we partner with him at that place that he's at work, that is when we just see mountains move. And that is where I'm going to say, I will sacrifice time and energy and prayer and that is where I will invest my life. I love that Paige found her purpose in helping people find their way back to God. And because of her example, Lindsay is finding her purpose in helping people find their way back to God. And of course, we have the ultimate example in Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, the son of God, he willingly set aside the comforts of heaven to come to earth and live among us. He grew up around others. He learned what it meant uh, to be a follower of God. He discovered what it means to find everything you need in his father. Jesus was focused. He was laser focused on being an ambassador for heaven on earth. Why? Because he only had 33 years. He had to be laser focused. Think about it. Jesus came from heaven, spent 33 years on earth, and he knew he was going back. And how would our lives change if we viewed our time here on earth that we were an ambassador for heaven? That there's a place that we're going back to someday and we want to tell as many people as we can about it because we want them to be there too. And you've got a part to play in helping people find a way back to God. That if you've been changed by Christ, you are compelled. You are no longer living for yourself. You're compelled to do life as ministry, taking the message of Jesus to others, taking that message of reconciliation and helping people find their way back to God. Are you willing? You know, over the next few weeks, we're going to ask a lot more questions. Like, what does this mean for you serving in the church? What does this mean with our ministry partners? What is it? How does church planning play a role? What about my financial investment? But for now, the beginning of a new year, time to make a new commitment. Here's, here's the commitment that we'd like you to make. I'm going to grow in my faith. I'm going to start meditating on scripture. And maybe I'm going to find someone to disciple me, or I'm going to start praying for people in my neighborhood, in my dorm, in my workplace, in my school. I'm going to practice spiritual CPR, cultivating, planning, and reaping with somebody and looking for someone to invest in. And I'm going to pray about my role and my investment at Genesis Church. And so we're just going to take a moment to do that together and think, what, what would happen? What would it look like if every single one of us responded to God, to, to voice a prayer to God and just say, I'm yours, God. I belong to you. I'm ready for my job. Let's take a moment, bow our heads, and let's pray together. God, may we never get over the fact that you took all of our sin and killed it on the cross. May we never get over the trade that we made where you took our sin on your son, Jesus, and you gave us his righteousness in exchange. Even this morning, that just blows me away. 
God, how can I not, how can we not then go out and tell people about this miraculous trade that we've made? Lord, help us to be ambassadors of heaven. Help us to take on that ministry of reconciliation and that message of reconciliation and take it to the people around us, Lord. Show us where you're already at work and help us to come alongside of you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.